0: Uh, morning, everyone. As, uh, as James said, we're reading from Acts chapter 18, beginning at 18 and through to 19.22. So it's uh, a middle-length uh, Bible reading, so settle back and, and get comfortable. 18.18. Uh, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had, cut his, uh, cut, ha- had his hair cut off in Sincreia because of a vow he had taken. He arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to go to Archaea, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by the grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decides to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Archaea. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. G'day everyone,
1: let me just fix this up to my height, and what a joy it is that we can hear from God's word, and given it's God's word, it would be right that we ask God to give us understanding, so we're going to start by praying to him, asking him that. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. We ask that you'll help us to understand it today rightly, that we may know and love you and your son Jesus more. In his name we pray. Amen. Did you know that the vast majorities of country? the vast majority of countries with the fastest-growing evangelical Christian movements in the world right now are also the countries facing some of the greatest opposition to the gospel. Countries like Nigeria, Iran, China and India are reported to have some of the fastest-growing global evangelical movements. All these countries also sit near the top of the Open Doors World Watch List countries with the most severe persecution against Christians. In parts of the world where Christians are facing the most severe opposition and hindrance, the gospel is increasing greatly. But this is not a new phenomenon. Since the start of the Christian church, the same pattern has been evident. Where Christians have been faced with the most severe opposition, where there have been all sorts of hindrances to the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel has continued to increase and Jesus has continued to call people into his kingdom. Where there is opposition, however great, God continues to grow his kingdom as he empowers people to boldly preach the gospel regardless of the consequences they may face. In Acts so far, Christians have faced all sorts of potential, hindr- potential hindrances to gospel increase. In today's passage, we'll see a whole variety of hindrances to the advance of the gospel, from people directly opposing the preaching of it to people falsely calling on Jesus' name for their own means to people thinking they know God but being hindered from truly knowing him because of that. But we'll see that the increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, if we go to our next slide, Kez, the increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, for Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. Whether it's the threat of death or imprisonment, like we see throughout Acts and in so many parts of the world today, like Nigeria and Iran, or whether it's the hindrance of being asked to leave the synagogue, however great or small, Jesus will continue to fill people with his spirit and cause the gospel to increase all throughout the world to his glory. If you remember nothing else from today's passage, remember that key point. We start our passage today with Paul wrapping up his second missionary journey. Last week we saw some of the ministry that Paul was doing in Corinth, preaching the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles who lived in the city. Today, we'll see how Paul concluded his second missionary journey as he went out from Corinth, reasoning with non-believers and strengthening the church. We're up to point one on the outline at the back of the printout, if you're taking notes. Verse 18 says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centraea because of a vow he had taken. So Paul remained at Corinth for a while, preaching the gospel before beginning his journey back to Syria, where he would soon come and greet his home church at Antioch. He was accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, two tent makers and believers in Jesus, who he had worked with in Corinth to fund his ministry. And his first stop on his journey was at Centraea, the coastal city to the east of Corinth, from which he would sail off, but firstly he was stopping there for a haircut. Imagine having your haircut recorded in the Bible for millions of Christians over 2,000 years to read about. Noah, one of our members at Night Church, who's also a barber at Oren Park, once told me about the time he cut Dustin Martin's hair Dusty being one of the most exciting and successful AFL players to play ever. And I thought that was pretty awesome as far as haircut stories go. Not that it's the greatest haircut around. (laughs) But this takes the cake. So why include a haircut in this passage? Well, the end of verse 18 says that Paul was under a vow. That vow was most likely a Nazarite vow, which we're taught about way back in Numbers chapter 6 but detailed some things that a Nazarite man or woman, whom for a period of time had been dedicated to the Lord, would have to do. Part of this, from Numbers 6, verse 5, said, During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. When the period then ended, they would would get a haircut and present themselves in Jerusalem for a short period of time for purification. Paul had likely taken this vow when he had been sent out for his second missionary trip by his home church at Antioch. And now that he was finishing up his trip and consequently finishing his time of dedication to the Lord, it was time to get a haircut. This vow also, very importantly, Showed Paul's commitment to seeing the gospel increase amongst Jews as he showed himself to be a Jewish Christian, a Christian who still valued Jewish traditions, but who served Jesus as Lord. So Paul got his haircut, and then in verse 19, he came to Ephesus. We read from verse 19 that they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Ephesus was an area in the world that was booming as a major global commercial center and as a culturally rich and religiously diverse city. So Paul came to Ephesus, where he parted with Priscilla and Aquila, who had likely come there to expand their ten-making business, and went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Paul saw it as a priority to continue seeing the gospel increase amongst Jews. So he came first to the Jews in Ephesus before he went to the Gentiles. This raises the question, did Paul not say earlier in chapter 18 that he would now only go to the Gentiles? Why then is he back preaching to the Jews only a few verses later? Well, Romans 11 tells us that Paul's heart desire was still for his fellow Jews to know Christ. And when given the opportunity, he could not help himself but preaching to the Jews. Even in his ministry to the Gentiles, he still hoped that it would lead to salvation of Jews. Paul saw evangelism to the Jews as a priority. So he began his ministry in Ephesus, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, trying to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. But Paul didn't stay long, for Ephesus was just a stop on his way through to finish his second mission trip. He did eventually return to Ephesus, as we'll see later in our passage today, and God used him to advance the gospel despite hindrance, but for now he was off. It's interesting what he said as he was leaving. I will come back if it's God's will. It's hard to go wrong if that's how you operate. Paul spent some time reasoning with the Jews at Ephesus, but now it's time for him to complete his haircut vow. So off to Jerusalem he went. We read in verses 22 and 23. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. As a continued commitment to Jewish evangelism, Paul completed his vow, going to Jerusalem, where Jews who had taken this Nazarite vow had to come for a time of purification at the end of their dedication to the Lord. He greeted the church at Jerusalem presumably strengthening them while he was there, before going back to his home church at Antioch and spending some time there with them. We finish this section with Paul leaving Antioch, probably around after a year and a half or so of being there and beginning another missionary journey by strengthening the disciples he encountered along the way in Galatia and Phrygia. We've seen so far that Paul's priorities are reasoning that is attempting to persuade people of the truth of the gospel and strengthening those who already know Jesus, that they may keep following him. These are two priorities we must have as well, reasoning and strengthening. We make the Sunday church gathering and midweek Bible studies priorities because these are times when we can strengthen each other as fellow believers. And we need to make reasoning Or what we might call evangelism, a priority so that we see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth for Jesus' glory. And how good is it? What the Good News team is doing there? We're now up to point two on our sermon outlines, if you're following along there. Point two, John's baptism is not sufficient. And I'll quickly have a drink of water. All right. So while Paul was out strengthening Christians on his way back to Ephesus, we meet a man named Apollos. Verses 24 to 26 say Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Apollos was a Jew who knew the scriptures well, who had been baptised by John the Baptist, the man who paved the way for Jesus' coming, and who clearly had an idea of who Jesus was. He had recognised that John's baptism was pointing to Jesus, for he spoke of Jesus rather than of John, and he even spoke of Jesus accurately. However, it seems that he didn't truly know the gospel, for in the second half of verse 26, we see that Priscilla and Aquila, who had remained in Ephesus, had to invite him to their house so that they could give him a complete explanation of the gospel. Apollos may have known of Jesus and even recognised Jesus as the fulfilment of John's baptism, but for whatever reason, he hadn't grasped the reality that Jesus had died and been buried, that he'd been raised to life and that he'd ascended into heaven and that this proved that Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed king who would save his people. He was hindered from truly knowing Jesus up to this point, by his inadequate knowledge of the saving work of Jesus, John's baptism alone was not enough for his salvation. But as a true follower of John, when he heard the gospel explained to him, he turned and followed Jesus. True followers of John the Baptist would become true followers of Jesus when presented with the gospel, even if John's baptism seemed to hinder them from knowing Jesus. And we see the outworking of this in verses 27 and 28, which say When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos had already shown an eagerness for and boldness in preaching the gospel. So he was sent out to keep preaching the gospel now that he knew the true gospel throughout the world. And what a simple but wonderful message he preached, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the same message that we see at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the same one that Jesus' first followers so often preached to those around them and the same message that was prophesied the whole way through the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, who turned out to be Jesus. Jesus' mission to the world in increasing the gospel cannot be hindered. He will save whoever he chooses, whether that's people who think they already know him but are yet to truly know him, people who have no desire to know him at all, or anyone in between. We see this again soon after when Paul has now arrived at Ephesus and Apollos has journeyed out into the world. Paul arrives at Ephesus and meets some men who have also been baptised by John and who are described as disciples of some sort. Verses 1 to 3 say, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul met these men, 12 of them according to verse 7, who he assumed to have believed, but who very quickly showed that they were not believers in Jesus, for they had not received the Holy Spirit, or even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We often have a tendency to forget about the Holy Spirit or to devalue him, to chuck him on the end alongside the father and the son as the third part of the Godhead, as the third person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit is the very spirit of God, the inmost being of who he is. He is necessary for our salvation, as we see with these men who clearly haven't been saved because they haven't received him. And he's necessary for our ongoing sanctification, that is, our ongoing continual growth in godliness. So when Paul sees that these men have not received the Holy Spirit, alarm bells start ringing in his head. He asks them what baptism they have received, and they've only received John's baptism. A baptism that pointed to the coming Messiah, but not one that was sufficient alone for salvation. So Paul told them what they needed to hear starting from verse 4. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all, just like we saw with Apollos, John's baptism was not sufficient for salvation. And in fact, it was meant to lead John's disciples to eventually becoming Jesus' disciples. It was a baptism of repentance that was meant to culminate in people believing in Jesus, being baptised in his name and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It was maybe a good start, but it was not sufficient for salvation. Therefore, it proved to be a hindrance to these 12 men knowing Jesus. And as we're seeing today, the increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, for Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. And he did just that. When Paul told these men the true gospel, as followers of John the Baptist, they repented, believed and became true followers of Jesus who were now indwelt by his spirit. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied which, of course, we know are necessary parts of salvation. Except they aren't. So why include this detail in the story? Well, in this case, it seems that the speaking in tongues and prophesying were crucial indicators for these men, who had previously only been baptised by John the Baptist, that now they had been baptised in the name of Jesus and did have the Holy Spirit that Paul had told them of. A similar thing happened in Acts 2, On the day of Pentecost, where the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised to them days before, and they spoke in tongues, beginning the global proclamation of the gospel. Speaking in tongues and prophesying seemed to be an important indicator for these particular people of their salvation and receiving of the Holy Spirit, but it is not a necessity to salvation. This This section is descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes what happened to these particular people, but it does not prescribe what must happen to all people if they are to be saved. As we see in so many other parts of Acts where people are saved and most certainly don't speak in tongues. We come now to our third and final section, point three on your sermon outlines. The word continues to increase despite resistance. And in this section, we'll see the gospel continuing to increase despite a range of hindrances, including opposition and magicians using Jesus' name like a spell. Verses 8 to 10 say, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyranus. This went on for two years so that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul returns to the synagogue in Ephesus and begins trying to reason with people to persuade people just like he had been doing back in chapter 18. But he eventually encountered opposition from people there who tried to speak badly of Christianity. And instead of arguing with the people and making life hard for himself, he said, yeah, nah, and moved elsewhere where he could also see gospel increase without having to bother with the people that were having a go at him. So he went to the Hall of Tyranus, which means tyrant. Imagine naming a kid Tyrant. And continued to preach to the point that all Jews and Greeks throughout Asia had heard of Jesus. A bit of Jewish opposition to the gospel wasn't enough to hinder Jesus from continuing to make his gospel known through his servant Paul throughout the world. And then, to keep things interesting, Paul started throwing some miracles in there. Of course, we know it's actually the Holy Spirit who was causing these miracles, but the magicians didn't need to know that. Verses 11 and 12 say, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to their sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Even the cloths that Paul blew his snotty nose on would go out and heal people who touched them. God, by his Holy Spirit, was empowering Paul to do these miracles so that the gospel would continue to advance. As we see in the next few verses, when some exorcists turn up trying to use the same tricks that Paul had been doing to remove evil spirits from people. Verses 13 to 16 say, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It almost seems like a comical story. Some Jewish exorcists, including these seven sons of the chief priest, decide that if Paul can use Jesus' name to cast out evil spirits, surely they can too. So they started going around trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, like saying his name was some sort of magic trick that would bring them out, abracadabra, expelliarmus, but Jesus' name isn't a magic trick. Paul wasn't able to cast out the evil spirits because he was saying Jesus' name with enough gusto. No, what the sons of Sceva didn't know was that Paul actually had Jesus dwelling inside him, using Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons to heal people so that the name of Jesus might be known and the gospel may increase. And that's what happened. The sons of Sceva kept trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name with no luck. And eventually one of them decided to bash the lot of them up and leave them naked and bleeding, running out into the street for help. Exposed for the frauds they really were. But even with this craziness seeming to potentially cause a hindrance to gospel increase, Jesus' mission to advance the gospel couldn't be stopped. And in fact, he used the beating of the sons of Sceva for the purpose of gospel increase. Verses 17 to 20 say, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Paul's healing of people with handkerchiefs in Jesus' name And the subsequent beating of those who used Jesus' name falsely led to gospel increase. People were seized with fear when they saw that Jesus' name had power, both to cause healing and harm. People believed and repented of their sins, burning what was probably millions of dollars worth of magical scrolls because they saw that the power of Jesus was greater than any other power. God didn't just use this... God didn't just overcome this potential hindrance to gospel increase, but in fact he ordained this hindrance so that the gospel would increase even more greatly. God even has control over the evil spirits who recognised Jesus and Paul but did not recognise the sons of Sceva. When Jesus chooses to save, it doesn't matter what worldly things get in the way, for he has power over all of them and will complete his saving work, regardless of human factors. We end this passage with Paul continuing on in verses 21 and 22, planning to continue his global journey of gospel proclamation, and even sending some helpers ahead of him to begin preaching in some of the places that he would later visit for the sake of Jesus' glory. We've seen today that gospel increase cannot be stopped, For Jesus will continue to advance the gospel as he chooses, no matter the circumstances. We've seen a range of hindrances that could have gotten in the way of gospel increase. But we have seen that God is more powerful than any hindrance the world could even begin to try throwing at him. So, how does this apply to us now? Here's some final implications. One, continue evangelising. Don't stop telling people the glorious news that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul didn't care what people thought about him. Paul didn't care when people didn't want him in the synagogue. He just went elsewhere and kept preaching. We have such a limited time on this earth, maybe 70, 80, 90 years if we're lucky. Nothing else that we do on this earth matters to the eternity that comes after. The friends we keep because we weren't bold enough in preaching the gospel to them The money we make because we weren't willing to do the right thing and instead we did ungodly things when we had an opportunity right there to tell people that Jesus is more important to us. None of that comes with us once we die. So we need to stop valuing these things over preaching the gospel message that we know the whole world needs to hear if they are to be saved. Be encouraged that our feeble attempts at evangelism are well and truly enough for Jesus to save people if he chooses. Two, pray. If Jesus alone can save people, pray that he will. The Good News team, as we heard before, launched these nifty little cards at their first meeting that can help us in committing to pray for gospel advance. I need these as much as anyone. My prayerlessness is abhorrent. Keep praying that Jesus will save Our third and final implication. Make church, make Bible study, make anything that contributes to the strengthening of Jesus' church a priority. Paul saw that evangelism shouldn't be his only priority. It's a crucial priority, but not the only one. Paul committed to travelling throughout the world to churches that were already established to strengthen them. He knew that growth in godliness the ongoing sanctification of those who already know Jesus as Lord was and still is a necessity. We bring God glory not only in our evangelism to the lost, but also in our own spiritual growth and in the spiritual growth of others. Make that a priority. The increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, for Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are growing your kingdom through the work of your son in your people. We pray that you will continue to grow your kingdom, that many people may know you, that many people may know your son Jesus and call on him as Lord. We pray that you will use us as a part of this. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.